My name is Bonnie. I'm going to be moderating the call today, and we are talking about conservation. We're joined by Alison Van Gort of Policy Director in the Cascade Land Conservancy, and Will Abinger, Director of Conservation Finance for the Trust for Public Land. Um, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce both of them, um, and uh, I'm just going to give you a quick introduction and overview of, of how the call works. We ask people to open the Google Doc. We'll use that to take questions. Um, if you have comments, resources, any other links, uh, please plug them into that document. I'll be using that to moderate out, and um, please add your name to the end of a question so that I can call on you and, um, and you can take yourself off mute and, and have a chat with us. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Allison to introduce yourself um, and tell us a bit about your work. All right. Thanks, Bonnie. Um, so I'm Allison Van Gorp. Um, as she said, I'm the Urban Policy Director at Cascade Land Conservancy, and we're a um, conservation and community building organization based out of Seattle. We operate in western Washington. Um, and I've worked with the organization for about six years now. And one interesting um, piece of information about us is that when I started several years ago, the organization was under 20 people, I think about 18. And in the three or four years after that, we grew up to about 60 people. And so we've gone through a lot of changes in the time I've been here, both in the geographic area where we work and in the, the type of work we do. So um, when we when we... Got, we're about a 20-year-old organization, and that first 15 years or so was really focused as um, a traditional land trust. We did um, land conservation transactions in the, the King County area around Seattle and um, had quite a bit of success in that. Um, but at, at one point about six or seven years ago, the organization kind of said to itself, <coughs> so far we've really only been successful in conserving these you know, small properties here and there, some some larger properties, but we're really not getting the the landscape scale conservation that we think is necessary to protect the environment and the quality of life of the region. And so we kind of did a strategic planning process where we we did extensive outreach in the community. We had about um, 4,000 people engaged through town hall meetings, um, one-on-one -on -one conversations with different experts, um, working groups with farmers, economists, scientists, etc., and really tried to get a feel for what it was about our region that we needed to maintain for um, the next 100 years to protect our quality of life. And that, that really built the foundation for what we call the Cascade Agenda, and that's our strategic vision, guides the organization. And it came out with two goals. First was to conserve 1.3 million acres of working farms, forests, and natural areas. And the other was to create great communities. And so that was really the new piece for us, was to look at how our communities grow and, and how we focus population within existing communities by making them really vibrant and great places to live so that people choose to move there rather than sprawling out across the lands we're trying to conserve. Mm -hmm. So um, after we launched the, agenda, the Cascade Agenda about five and a half years ago, um, that really resulted in a lot of changes within our organization as well. Um, we grew, as I said, from about 20 to 60 people over a few years, and a lot of that was um, 
in developing programs to work within communities doing um, policy work, smart growth policy, community building, um, and community engagement. And we also expanded geographically um, a little bit during that time, and so we've, we've taken on a larger area of the state that we work in now. Um, so that's a little history on us, a little background of where we're coming from. Um, me personally, I, as I said, I'm the urban policy director, so I work um, primarily with cities around the Seattle metro region and helping them um, be more sustainable, be more livable, looking at their, their land use policies. And more recently, we've gotten very involved with community engagement at the local level, um, trying to get citizens more involved in planning for the future of their, their community. So I think we'll we'll touch on all of that work a little bit more throughout the rest of the call and the questions you guys you guys ask. Fantastic, thanks, Allison. Um, just as a reminder for people that are just joining the call now, um, if you could put yourself on mute and uh, we'll call on you uh, if you have some questions. Um, please use this opportunity to add notes into the Google document as well, um, and, and we'll use that as a, a way to kind of share all our resources together. Um, I can hear some music coming in from someone. If um, kind of nice background noise that um, might be a little distracting for some people. So if that's coming from you, maybe you can uh, put yourself on mute. So I'm going to pass over now to Will. Will, do you want to introduce yourself and your work? Yes, thank you very much, Bonnie. Uh, my name is Will Abiger. I'm uh, Director of Conservation Finance at the Trust for Public Land. Uh, the Trust for Public Land, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with our organization, is a national uh, private nonprofit land conservation organization. We've been uh, around for uh, almost 40 years, and our mission uh, most succinctly stated is conserving land for people, uh, whether that's a community garden in the South Bronx or uh, the crown of the continent out in Montana and the whole spectrum of land conservation needs in between. Um, I've been with TPL uh, for almost 20 years, uh, and in that time I've done a variety of different things, but for uh, about the last 10 years I've been working in our conservation finance program, helping create new sources of uh, funding at the state and local level for land conservation, primarily through uh, ballot measures. Um, TPL also has uh, several other services, uh, conservation vision service that helps do the kind of community planning uh, that Allison was talking about for, for land conservation and open space and also figuring out where we should develop. And uh, certainly conservation transactions are also at the heart of our work, which is the more traditional land trust work of actually facilitating real estate transactions to move land from private ownership into public ownership that's uh, important uh, for protection. But I think the, the thing that's most exciting about our conservation finance work to me uh, is how we engage uh, folks at the community level. Most of the ballot measures uh, we work on uh, originate by a group of citizens uh, in a community who are interested in uh, perhaps preserving an individual piece of property or perhaps uh, a more implementing a more comprehensive uh, open space plan. But nevertheless, we're trying to figure out how to fund that and what we're able to do is provide them with the technical assistance and the know-how from our experience in working on more than 400 successful ballot measures across the country 
to help them uh, figure out how to design that ballot measure and then win uh, voter approval for it in their community. Um, this last election uh, saw a really historic uh, victory at the ballot box for land conservation. It's sort of the one of the green linings we like to think of uh, in last year's election, uh, where 83% of the land conservation ballot measures at the state and le local level that were on the ballot were approved by voters, uh, and really voters of all political stripes, um, from uh, very conservative voters to uh, very liberal, liberal voters. They all seem to understand the importance of uh, land conservation in their communities and are willing to vote for it, even if it means increasing their taxes. So I think I'll stop there, Bonnie, and uh, we can hopefully get into some discussion. All right, fantastic. Thanks, Will. Um, I think they're both really interesting overviews of, of the work that you're doing. Um, and I think you've both touched on a real need um, around uh, engaging the community in these processes. Um, and so I guess uh, the, the first question I want to kick off with here is, um, is maybe both of you can kind of, from your own perspectives, give us an idea of how you really marry together conservation with community engagement. Alison, do you want to kick off? Sure. Um, there's, a, there's a couple ways that our organization works on bringing together community and conservation. The first is um, in every county where we operate, we've got a group of community trustees. And so these are folks that, that live in the, the communities and um, are, are interested in having a, a volunteer role with our organization. And they wear a lot of different hats. Um, many of them um, are involved in the stewardship of properties that we already own or have easements on. Um, a lot of them are engaged in community planning issues and work with our staff on that. And then they also help us identify um, potential properties that we might want to look at for for conservation. And so our our staff works um, really directly with these trustee groups, and they're kind of our our roots on the ground, our boots on the ground um, out in the communities where we work. And so that's been a, a very valuable resource on a lot of fronts with the work we do. Um, and then another program we're working on now is called Community Stewards, and this is really directed at trying to build more of a base of support for smart land planning in our communities. What we've seen with a lot of the cities we work with is that um, when there's, uh, you know, a new plan being proposed or a new development project being proposed, even if it um, might have a lot of benefits to the community, really the only thing the city council is hearing from community members is opposition. And um, we really wanted to start to, to build a base of support in terms of folks that want to shape new development and new growth in their community and, and play a role in, in guiding how that happens in the future, um, really to, you know, choose their own destiny as far as how growth happens. Um, and, and make sure that we're directing growth in the places that make sense and, and protecting the places where it doesn't. Um, so we've been working in a handful of communities in our region, um, connecting with citizens and providing them 
training and capacity building support on how to engage the land use process and you know how to be an effective communicator to the the planning commission and the city council and you know how to really navigate those sometimes sometimes complicated processes to see the results they they want in terms of planning for growth in their community. Fantastic. Uh, that that sounds like a, a whole range of different ways that you're pursuing engagement from a couple of different angles. Um, well, do you uh, do you have something to to add to complement that that skill set? Yeah, I mean, on a you know our work in conservation finance, I think is trying to engage communities at a very fundamental level to ex- exercise one of our most important civic rights, and that's the right to vote. Uh, you know, ultimately, with our ballot measures, uh, whether it's a constitutional amendment that was on the ballot statewide in Iowa last year or uh, a small town in Massachusetts that's seeking to implement the Community Preservation Act there, um, you know, getting folks to engage by coming out and casting a vote in favor of conservation. Um, so in the ballot measure design portion of our work, we're engaging uh, citizens uh, to help us figure out what a community's land conservation priorities are, what the finance mechanisms that are available to them are, and and which one makes the best sense for them. And then once a measure is actually referred to the ballot, it's uh, a campaign, uh, much like any political campaign. However, in our case, uh, the candidate is a is a funding measure for conservation. So it's about educating folks about what the the benefits are going to be and, and turning them out to vote on Election Day. Excellent. Um, and so, well, do you do you guys ever uh, engage in a process of participatory budgeting um, with your community, or is the work that you do much more focused on actually engaging people in the process? I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question, Bonnie. Do you ever engage in a, a process of participatory budgeting where the community is... Um, in charge of determining where the funds go? Uh, um, I don't know that I'm familiar with that term, but certainly uh, one of the best practices that we recommend is the establishment of some sort of a citizen's advisory committee. So once funding is dedicated for land conservation, uh, those citizens are coming up with the criteria and uh, objectives uh, for land conservation in their community and recommending uh, to their uh, local elected officials which land should be acquired. Right. And, uh, and what's the process that you might go through to do that? How do you start to identify the people that should be engaged in that process and and really kind of work with the elected officials to get that dialogue happening? Um, it depends in part upon the land conservation objectives, the sort of traditional way that these kind of committees are set up um, in most places around the country is, you know, every city council person or every county commissioner gets to pick someone from their uh, particular district that they recommend. Uh, We recommend looking more to folks that have expertise. So if the program in your community is about protecting agricultural lands, we want to get agricultural landowners. We want to get folks who are familiar with uh, agricultural best practices who understand uh, farming, uh, as well as have some expertise in in conservation uh, as members of that Citizens Advisory Committee. And, Allison, is that a similar process that that you go 
through to identify community trustees and your new community stewards? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part opportunistic and, and part strategic in terms of how we do that. Um, I mean, as we come into a new community where we're, we're looking to create a community stewards program, um, we first start with existing members and contacts and relationships we have in the community. Sometimes, you know, there's a well-established group of folks that we know there, and sometimes there's not. Um, and then we work with, um, you know, the people we know at the city and try to get connected with a lot of other existing community organizations and, you know, through a lot of just grassroots outreach um, with those other existing organizations, we try to identify people that would be interested in our mission and working on the kind of issues we care about and try to just network with um, these other organizations to find those those folks and, and get them involved. Fantastic. I'm seeing a question come in here from Eileen. Um, do you want to talk to that question that you're, I can see you typing right now um, around strategies that you use to engage members of communities of color and low income? Um, Allison, uh, do you want to do you want to tackle that question? I see Eileen can't um, can't sure. get on the line. Um, this is kind of a a new priority for us. Actually, we've started working in. Um, a city called Tukwila that's just south of Seattle. And we've been working in Tacoma for a few years as well. And both of those communities um, are very diverse. The Tukwila School District, for example, is considered the most diverse in the country in terms of the number of languages that are spoken at home for the students. Um, tons and tons of immigrants and from all, all different areas of the world. So um, that's been a very interesting experience in terms of um, trying to take the issues we care about and make them relevant to folks that are, you know, new to the country and really just working to get themselves established and take care of their family. Um, one thing that we've found that, you know, have been issues that really connect with um, these more diverse communities have been things like um, transportation access and community gardens. Um, so we've been working on a small project in Tukwila to create a new community garden that will, it's on a, a church property and it will primarily serve immigrants from Burma and Bhutan um, as a way for them to get access to healthy food. Um, and then we're also working with a nearby high school to, to get a educational program as a part of the, the project as well. So I think, you know, it's really been about trying to figure out um, what's relevant for these communities and the pieces of that that does fit with our mission. And then, you know, once we have that common ground, it's actually quite easy to work together. But we can't just come in with our own agenda and expect people to, to care about it and want to engage with us. Mm -hmm. Well, did you uh, did you have anything to add to that? It's, um, it seems like these uh, targeted approaches need to be quite specific for each community. Is that also the way that you guys work as well? Yes, uh, definitely, um, and uh, we do a lot of public opinion surveys uh, as part of our ballot measures and sometimes even have the luxury to do a post-election survey, and um, one interesting result of some of that work is the, the fact that um, people of color are generally more supportive of land conservation, uh, we found in, in some of the post-election polling we've done. We uh, are very focused on 
communicating with uh, voters in a particular community, and if um, people of color are voting uh, in numbers, we want to make sure that we're communicating to them. So uh, targeting our communications in uh, media that uh, they're going to be able to access, as well as things like making sure uh, direct mail or radio or television ads are, are multilingual. Fantastic. So you you both just touched on some of the tangible ways that you really uh, start to reach out to communities and some of the methods and tools that you use. Um, Will, do you want to talk a little more to that? You just mentioned radio. You just mentioned um, different types of uh, newsletters. Do you do you want to talk to some of the tools that are most effective when you're dealing with communities? Um. From our ballot measure work, the, the most effective way we found to communicate with voters and most cost-efficient way is actually through uh, direct mail, um, uh, a piece of mail, a pamphlet, a brochure, a flyer uh, that you as a voter would receive. Um, and that's a tool we use in most of our ballot measure campaigns, again, because it's uh, relatively cost-effective and can be very targeted. Uh, in terms of the uh, groups we want to communicate with in a ballot measure campaign and the specific messages we want to deliver to them. Um, I think I'll just stop there. Sure. Sure thing. Allison, uh, any tools that you're finding most effective to reach out to people? Well, I guess we really use a mix of tools, kind of depending on the situation in the community we're targeting. Um, we've experimented quite a bit with different online tools, um, I mean, I'm sure people are aware there's a lot of things available on the web right now in terms of social networking and um, kind of constituent communications. Um, we've found that generally, it depends on the group, but most people, the easiest way for them to get information is via email. And so we've generally used a lot of listservs um, to, you know, kind of with each of these local networks of community stewards, that's, we have a listserv for each one and then we can direct communication to them and they can um, communicate with, in, with each other and back to us quite easily that way. Um, it seemed like, you know, if these, these groups are often kind of a mix of ages and backgrounds and things. That was the, the easiest, most accessible way for most people to get involved. Um, but in some cases, we've also found tools like Facebook to, to work really well. And our organization as a whole uses Facebook and Twitter quite a bit to get more of our general information out to our members. Excellent. I think uh, that that's super helpful. Now, Lynn, I'm seeing uh, a really great thread here uh, about some information about conservation projects involved with the reintegration of service members. Lynn, do you want to talk to this a little? Um, you've been quite active in the comments here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, is Lynn Malley still on the line? Uh, if she's if she's not here, um, Allison, it looks like uh, it looks like you've made a couple of comments here. Um, do you want to talk a little to this around um, the reintegration uh, and opportunities for service for veterans in um, in conservation? Well, I'll try. I don't know actually very much about this. I know there's a program here in Washington State called the Veterans Conservation Corps, and um, you know it takes 
return veterans and provide them some training in stewardship and land restoration techniques. And I know our organization has partnered with them to do some of this work on our properties. And I really don't know more than that. Um, another person in my office has been has been working on it. Um, but I'm, I'm going to follow up with Lynn and get her some more information. And if anyone else is interested, just shoot me an email. Great stuff. Um, Lynn, if you try, I think it's hash six. It should unmute you. You want to, I can see you there. Um, all right, so there's, there's another great question here around um, examples where it hasn't worked to involve or engage the community in conservation. Um, Rebecca, do you want to speak to those, to that question? Sure. Um, I think one of the easiest ways we can learn about these examples sometimes is looking at what hasn't worked and then try to turn that around and say, okay, what, what could we change to see what has worked? So I think sometimes we try certain methods to engage citizens and it's not very effective. I'm wondering if either Allison or Will have examples of things that Cascade Land Conservancy or TPL have tried and have not found successful um, in ways that we could turn that around. Allison, do you want to do you want to respond? Sure. I guess the main thing we've found is that um, as we've started these community stewards groups, um, it's really important to have an issue that they're excited about and interested to work on that is timely. That's happening right now um, because. In a couple of places, we had started to bring together these groups and started tra giving them some training and getting people organized, but there wasn't a high-priority issue at hand to, you know, kind of direct their energy into immediately. Like, for instance, in one community, we knew that the city was going to be doing a big planning process in their downtown, and we had kind of initiated this group, but then the city chose to have a citizen task force um, kind of go into a room and work on this this plan for a year and then report back to the city. And so all of the um, process was kind of delayed for a year and we weren't able to work with this group to engage in it. And so it kind of lost a lot of energy and fizzled out a little bit. Fortunately, with that particular example, now that the the um, plan is back on the table and the, the task force has made their recommendations, we have a good opportunity to to re-energize that group and get involved again. But I think, you know, with, without a specific thing like that to work on, it's really difficult to get people excited and engaged and keep them involved. Um, so that's been a challenge for us is just kind of the, the timing of how a lot of this works is long. It stops and starts. And, um, you know, it doesn't always fit with how volunteers would like to be involved with things. Sure, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I imagine there's also an issue around uh, kind of immediate needs uh, and and longer term needs as well. If you're mm -hmm. um, trying to include those into a timeline, mm -hmm. is, is there a strong challenge there around um, kind of identifying different groups of people that can participate in the sort of the challenges that are immediate that are uh, really important that have to happen now that require people to act, and then the, the longer-term process of change? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a huge challenge to get people engaged in a long-term way. I mean, if there's an immediate pressing crisis kind of situation, 
it's often easy to get a lot of people involved for a short period of time. And some of them may even um, put in an incredible amount of effort, a lot of energy around the issue. But then when that's over, you know, whether you win or lose, it can be difficult to maintain that energy over the long term. And like like you said, a lot of this work really requires that long-term investment. You know, planning processes could take a year or two, and then there's always, you know, another thing, another thing, another thing, and, and kind of just the process of tracking development proposals and commenting on them and making sure that they're happening in a good way. That's kind of just an ongoing thing. And so finding those individuals who both have the, the interest and the time to stay involved for the long term is, is difficult. They're out there, but it takes a while to find them and, and you know, keep them keep them energized, keep them from burning out. Sure. And will I imagine you face similar challenges around uh, around financing, both at a the short-term immediate challenge and then these longer-term processes? Do you want to talk to that at all? We have one advantage in our work in that um, once a, a measure actually gets on the ballot, we've got uh, a very definite goal and a very definite deadline in Election Day. Um, so that is uh, a big motivating factor. Um, but, you know, where we've not been successful to get back to the question is where we haven't been able to attract broad-based uh, community support that's usually represented in our campaign committee. And I think probably our most difficult challenge in many of our ballot measure campaigns is attracting um, folks from the business community, from the real estate development community, from the banking and finance community, um, uh, from the economic development side of things, generally, uh, the, the land conservation allies and supporters and environmental organizations in a community or general very good to come on board. Um, but where we're most successful is where we're able to attract uh, those other kind of interests to lend their time, uh, to lend their names and, and endorsements uh, to our ballot measures. Fantastic. Now, uh, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing another question here from Lynn that I want to address around transition towns. Um, Allison, do you want to do you want to speak to that? Um, I actually don't know anything about this. I've never I've never heard of it before. Okay. Um, well, do you, do you have a background in this topic? That's a new one on me too, Bonnie. So. Okay. Uh, Lynn, I'm not. Sorry. Go ahead. It sounds interesting. I'd love to learn more about it. It does sound interesting. It's it's also new to me. So, um, Lynn, I'm I'm not sure if you've managed to sort yourself out on, on the mute there. If you can jump in and, and fill us in on what's going on there, that would be great. And sadly, I'm, I'm guessing that, uh, that Lynn is still um, challenged uh, with, with the mute. Is there anyone else on the call that might be able to fill us in on, on what this is about? So it sounds like something that we should all know about. So, Lynn, I hope, I hope that you can uh, maybe give us some links and, and some more information in the document that we can all go back and reference because it, it sounds like a very interesting topic that, that we need to read up on. Um, 
Now, I see a, a comment up here from Ken. Ken, are you still on the line um, talking about some initiatives in Montana around the Land Information Act? Yes. Um, we have a, a Land Information Act that is primarily for geographic information systems, but it's a $1 recordation fee on all land transactions, and it's a competitive grant program that a number of tribal nations and others have uh, participated in. It's a once-a-year uh, grant program that um, we, for instance, are doing some conservation work with it on, in Teton County with the Rocky Mountain Front. And we've actually addressed in the last comment, have had some pretty good luck recently using the, uh, the STAR index and kind of approaching, instead of this conservation, approaching it with the economic development folks and others, a small 1,500-person community, um, but building a community that's sort of stability model around um, around a project that allows people to evaluate a new wind farm versus a biomass plant versus critical wildlife habitat. That sounds super interesting. Did you um, did you have a particular question for, for Allison and, and Will about how they can um, how they work and can reference that? Um, I, I didn't really have a particular question. I just completely agree that we've had a lot more success when we've been able to bring the bankers in and bring the economic development folks in uh, and provide tools that, that they can access, but also in a comparative way compare their um, their needs with the conservation needs in the area. Uh, we've, been, we've been roadblocked a lot more um, going in and talking just conservation. You get shut down pretty quickly in a conservative place like that in Montana, but um, many people are pretty open-minded when you approach it, you know, with all perspectives. That's a really interesting way to, to kind of frame it. So when you reframe the issue as, as uh, something else, um, you're finding that people are more engaged with the topic of conservation? Correct. And, and using, we've been using um, ArcGIS Online and, and various free mapping tools and just trying to bring the kids in the community into it as well, but trying to engage a lot of, um, a lot of people in sort of approaching geography, but with easy-to-use, you know, free mapping tools and ArcGIS Online, which is a sort of a social networking site for geographic information, um, but making it a more inclusive, all-community-type support. One other thing I wanted to mention that um, I just was down at the USRI Business Partner Conference this week, and Tim O'Reilly's group, Code for America, is worth looking at. Um, it's basically the young, youngest and the brightest. Um, they have a fairly small program now that's very urban-oriented, but they, uh, it's an amazing program of one-year voluntary effort with a lot of capacity building and training for the, the youth going through it. It's not just folks out of college, but also those that have been in the private or public sector for a couple of years, but um, just training them to do community engagement. They volunteer a year to participate, and they hope to move into rural eventually, but now they're city-focused. That's fantastic. Um, thanks for bringing that to our attention. We're, we're actually hoping to, to have a, a chat with those guys soon on one of these calls. Um, so we'll be sure to let you know if that if that happens. Um, it sounds like you're talking a lot about collaboration techniques, and so bringing a lot of different people to the table to address these issues. Um, and well, it 
it sounds like when you're talking about this as well, you're you're really talking about bringing in multiple sources of funding and and getting a bunch of different people at the table. Do you want to talk to your experiences in that and maybe some of the the tough challenges that you face doing that? You still on the line, Will? That question was for Ken or Allison or I'm sorry, Bonnie. That that question was for you. Oh, uh, that was for me. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Not to worry. Yeah, um, I think uh, the point that the last speaker made about um, framing your issue is is fundamental to that. And again, um, as I've said before, we use uh, uh, public opinion surveys as a way to really test our language and to make sure how we're talking about conservation is uh, something that makes sense to people and that they can understand um, uh, from uh, really any any viewpoint that they're approaching it from. Um, we've really worked hard to uh, make sure that, uh, for instance, um, we are also talking about the economic benefits of land conservation in, in addition to some of the traditional uh, values that land conservation brings and also talk about the health benefits of land conservation. And I think when we can take the conversation to that level, it makes uh, that kind of uh, collaboration uh, much easier and brings a lot more people to the table. For instance, if we're talking about protecting a river system in order to protect the endangered species in it, that, that's one thing. But if we're talking about protecting a river system in order to protect the community's drinking water supply, then that takes us from an environmental issue to really a public health issue. And, and that's uh, the way we found uh, we can attract the most support. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I'm seeing a question in here. Um, is there anyone else on the line working in community conservation initiatives uh, that have some experiences they'd like to share? Um, this is a, you know, it sounds like there's some really great opportunities to share some of our experiences around collaboration and some of the techniques that really work to get people engaged or help to reframe these issues that Will was just talking about. Um, is there anyone that, that wants to jump on with some some of the experiences that they've had or challenges they've faced? Dan again, I'll add one more thing. Um, we've been using the, the community software from Orton Foundation and um, at a watershed level, but um, we've combined it with keypad polling, which is you know using little devices for everybody to you give them a multiple choice quest type question and then they respond. Um, the cool thing about it is it's very inclusive. It, it, um, we typically are in small groups where you up to about 25, and everybody can sort of weigh in. And, um, for instance, with the layers we've been using, there's 15 or 20 different themes, community themes, and we have, you know, the bankers do it and the health officials do it and the conservationists do it. But everybody, instead of just the vocal minority that always dominates the meetings, everybody weighs in this time and they can get a snapshot as an opening for the conversation of where the group's at that is way more representative. And um, it's kind of interesting. A lot of schools use that technology, but it's new to us, and it's kind of been working pretty well. Yeah, thanks, Ken. That's great insight. Um, 
It sounds like you guys are participating with some really interesting technologies there. Um, are you, can you talk to any of the challenges that you've faced with those? When What happens when things things don't work or, or you lose connections? Are there well, the biggest challenge, I think, is for us is because we work in computer mapping and such is bridging that digital divide. The, the National Broadband Map came out about a month ago and you know, roughly 28% of the rural part of the country doesn't have broadband, and and we have a lot of people in rural areas that are um, that are a bit, you know, they don't they don't like computers, they don't like doing things on computers. So we've been trying to figure out ways to bridge that that divide to sort of take a, a wiki into an analog, you know, bulletin board format and how to I don't know. We we haven't had great success in in that transition. Yeah, that sounds pretty challenging. Allison, do you uh do the use of any of the technologies in your programs if um if you're having problems uh with engagement by using new tools or uh You know, we we really haven't used any of the the fancier technologies like keypad polling or anything yet, though we've been looking into it. Um we've been pretty low tech really just using a lot of traditional butcher paper and, you know, stickers and things like that, um, PowerPoints. Um, one of our biggest challenges really, though, especially when working with the diverse communities like we were talking about before, has been around languages and translation. And so, um, you know, finding ways to, to get folks that can translate and then trying to integrate that within a, a meeting, you know, it can be challenging, it can slow down the conversation, and there can be challenges a lot around terminology, for example, with that community garden project. You know, we, we had a landscape architect student that was helping to design the garden and was trying to talk to the, the stakeholders about different, um, like, low-impact development strategies, uh, rainwater management strategies that we might be able to use on the property, and, you know, the kind of terminology she uses was not possible to translate into Burmese, basically. And so just kind of bridging those communication divides has really been one of the, the bigger challenges that we've been working on lately, um, and that's completely absent from technology. Interesting. Do you, um, have you had any great successes where you've, you've managed to overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, they're they're all small struggles, but they're things that you can work around and figure out. And um, for example, that that garden in Tukwila is going to start construction this weekend. So I think you know it's it's kind of been a learning process for us, but nothing that has stopped um, good things from moving forward. Fantastic. And uh, we're we're coming up close to time now. Um, I, I would like to just see if there's anyone else on the call that has anything that they really want to, to add and um, speak to any case studies or um, particular challenges that they're facing right now that um, that Allison and Will might be able to give some advice on or help out with. So please um, please jump on and, and voice your, your questions if you do have any. I think um, I think I'd also like to um, to pose the challenge to to Will and Allison. Um, if there are any key actions 
that uh, that people can take. Will, do you want to to have a, a think about this and, and maybe answer first on this one around what people can think about doing to really start off some engagement around a conservation movement or really start to think about what, what kind of actions people can take in their local communities? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the most dawning challenge that we face right now is what we see as a real disconnect between uh, the electorate, the voters, and their elected officials on this issue of funding for land conservation. Um, as I said, the, the passage rate when uh, people are given an opportunity to vote for land conservation is, is very, very high, um, yet uh, we have trouble convincing uh, state legislators and county commissions and city councils to um, give voters a chance to vote on land conservation. So I think the most important people thing people can do is to engage their elected officials in their community, whether it's a state representative or a, or a local uh, mayor or a city commissioner, and talk to them about uh, why land conservation is important in their community and uh, educate them and, and really, uh, you know, fundamentally we like to get people out on the land, so take them out and show them uh, the great parks that you have and, and uh, hopefully that will encourage them to be more supportive of, uh, of where their voters already are. All right, do you have any, um, do you have any good examples or suggestions on pe how people might start doing that? So if we, if we can give people the challenge to start engaging more with their elected officials, um, what are some good ways to reach out to them or really kind of get that face-to-face -face time or get an email into their hands? Or well, I find that um, elected officials at the local level are generally pretty accessible, um, so it's, you know, as simple as, uh, making a phone call or writing them a letter or an email to try to set up an appointment to go talk to them. Um, it's a little bit more difficult uh, with state senators and state representatives, but when they're not in the state capital, when they're home in their district and you're one of their constituents, they generally also want to hear from you as well. So it's, you know, just uh, reaching out to them. Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that. I think we've had a really similar experience that if you've got a, a pressing issue of concern, it's not too hard to get elected officials to, to pay attention, especially when you've got um, a broad base of constituents of stakeholder groups that are interested in it. So, you know, if one person is requesting a meeting, it's going to be more difficult. But if you've got a group of, you know, five or ten or twenty different stakeholders that are all concerned about an issue and, and want to take a council member out on a walking tour, for example, I think that's going to be a pretty easy ask, and, and the, the elected official is going to be very eager to hear from those folks and what their perspective is on the issue. All right. Well, that's great advice. Allison, do you, um, do you have any other kind of key critical actions that people can take to get started or ways to improve on what they're doing already? I mean, I think people feel like... Um, this is really hard, like getting started, um, getting a community group organized would be really difficult, but I would just urge people to start small and simple. Um, host a happy hour or host a walking tour that are going to, you know, touch on the issue you're worried about and try to pull in more people that care about it. And, you know, if you can get together a small group of folks, you know, four or five people, that's really enough to get started. And, 
you know, get those people organized, start going to meetings, start making comments, and, and get the word out to other people in the community, and, and it'll snowball. So I think just don't be intimidated and, and start simple. That's great advice for people just trying to to get something off the ground, um, starting the, you know, starting super small um, and really moving from there. What about uh, what about people that already have a a, a level of constituent engagement that um, are looking to kind of ramp up their action and and start to tackle some bigger challenges? Yeah, I mean, I guess for our organization, you know, we had been around for about 20 years and hadn't done a lot of grassroots work up until pretty recently. And so we had a lot of members and we had our trustees and, you know, we had those roots in some communities, but we hadn't really um, gotten active on kind of local politics, local decisions. And so for us, it was really just kind of shifting how we thought about our work. I think a lot of land trusts, for example, really try to be um, apolitical. They don't want to be partisan. They don't want to take sides on issues because they want to have that broad base of support for conservation. Um, and so we've really had to kind of set that aside and say, look, you know, these decisions that are happening around comprehensive planning and growth management and individual development projects even are having a substantial impact on our ability to do our work and it's important for us to, to have a voice in those discussions and it doesn't need to be partisan. This is about, you know, what's going to benefit the quality of life for our region and, and give us a good future. So there's a way that we can have a voice in this um, that still fits with our identity as an organization and, a, and our mission. Fantastic. Can, do you want to jump in with some of the, some actions that you've seen people take, or that you personally and, and your organization have, have undertaken to kick kick this stuff off, or or push it forward? I think um, having the local folks in particular is critical, and, and I think looking for non-traditional partners that are that are open for discussion. Um, that certainly happened in Teton County with some. Are very conservative folks that still are very concerned about traditional ways of life and and working through them to engage broader parts of the community. We worked with 24 land trusts in the Greater Yellowstone and Northern Rockies on a project called Heart of the Rockies. It was about a 10-year effort to identify key conservation areas, and it involved everyone from the, the Wyoming Stock Growers Association to you know the Nature Conservancy, and so a pretty broad spectrum, and it was a bit you know, under the radar, behind behind the scenes kind of work, but um, getting those kind of people that you normally think would not be conducive, but there's a lot of open-minded people out there in rural America that are willing to participate. And I think working through them and their their networks, there's a lot of common ground more than people I think think often. Yeah, thanks, Kim. That's, um, that's really great insight. I think uh, certainly one of the things that's coming through really strongly on the through the discussion on this call for me is the, the need to find common ground and to be able to frame these issues in multiple ways that really speak to the, the needs and the, the things that people involved in them find important. Um, Ken, uh, did you did you have any comment on that? Did you want to talk to some ways that you've managed to do that to, to kind of frame things in a way that, that really highlights that common ground? Well, um, 
opening it up, we similar to TPL, we you know we use um, SurveyMonkey and do open community surveys, and then try to address those and trying to you know in the mapping work, try and we use both commercial and public data to try to you know hit all the bases and respond to people. You know the hardest ones are um, kind of the you know the the private you know, the Tea Party type approaches or folks that are really into private land rights and it's harder to, you know, map their needs but um but we're struggling to do that and you know, trying to be again open to all at least as part of the dialogue, um, open to all comers and and initially when we started this effort it was more of a closed mailing list but we found a lot more success in inviting sort of an open public uh engagement. Um the other thing I think that's worked in some cases is working through, as I said earlier, private um, private events, having um, uh, you know coffees and other ways for small groups to people that normally may not engage in civic involvement to be able to work with their neighbors. So reaching the folks that that don't often you know participate in this, so it's a broader community involvement. Yeah, fantastic. I see. Um, I see Lynn's. Uh, mentioned uh, another event there called Green Drinks, which sounds like it might do something similar um, by bringing people together in a slightly more informal setting. Um, and Lynn's put that link in there, so I think uh sounds like it's something that people can engage with in their own local communities. Uh, it might be worth something to check out. Um, Allison, did you want to make a final comment around around this concept of, of finding common ground and really kind of finding ways to bring more people into the conversation. Sure. A lot of what Ken was just saying I think really resonates with the the type of work we do here in Washington as well. Um, I think Cascade Land Conservancy has a a long history of working with really diverse stakeholders to get um, conservation deals done and identify you know, a path forward on community issues, and that has really um, been kind of a keystone of how we identify ourselves and, and, and you know, how we pursue our mission. We try to work with everyone from, you know, the, the large timber landowners to the farmers to the local citizens to the developers. We've got a major developer chairing our board currently, and I think a lot of environmental groups sometimes would shy away from that kind of a situation, feeling like, you know, they don't want to sell out to those interests. But we've really said, you know, we've got to find solutions that work for all of these parties. Um, We've got to find ways to develop communities that, you know, both protect our quality of life and turn a profit for developers because we know our region's growing. We know we need more housing, but we've got to do it in the right way and in the right places. So we really see it as the heart of our mission to be able to work with all of these different stakeholders and find the common ground um, where we can move forward. So I think that kind of is just the underpinning of all the work we do and the way we approach any kind of issue when we come into a community is to figure out, you know, who are all the stakeholders, what are all the sides on this issue, and, and how can we work with all of those folks to find the solution. That's fantastic. That's really inspiring. Um, Will, do you uh, do you want to make a final comment on that about finding a, a common ground and, and how that relates to your work? Yeah, I touched on this a minute ago, but um, 
one of the areas where we're uh, expanding our, our work and where we're seeing a lot of demand uh, for our work is in the area of conservation economics. Um, what is the contributions that uh, land conservation makes uh, in everything from uh, property values to tourism to uh, business relocation to the uh, return on investment that's provided by natural goods and services. And um, that's uh, in a, a rationale that um, seems to cut across a lot of uh, different um, political uh, backgrounds and persuasions and um, one that, that we're finding is more and more effective. So I think to the extent those of us in the conservation community in the political and economic climate that we're operating in in this country today can uh, demonstrate uh, the importance of land conservation to the uh, economy of our communities, uh, the more effective we're going to be. I think that's a really great closing comment there and, and really kind of speaks to the heart of this issue about finding the things that are really important to people to to help forward the conservation of, of, of particular landscapes and, uh, and and elements of our, our communities. Um, before we before we sign off here, um, I just wanted to make a, a, a quick kind of call to arms for people on the call. Um, and would really love your feedback on um, how Community Matters can continue to support this conversation. Uh, we recognize that it's a, a really important one and are, are really interested in your feedback as to how, um, as to how we can keep it going and, and really help to support you in the work that you're doing. Um, you know, is it to keep more calls like this going? Is, are there other tools that you need? Uh, is it access to resources? If you can just um, maybe give us a few notes or, or jump in and, and let us know if there's anything in particular that would be really useful for you. Um, and with that, I'm going to say thank you very much. We're coming up at to 5 o'clock Eastern time, which is now our sign-off time. Um, and I'd really like to say thank you very much to Allison and Will for joining us um, and to everyone on the call. Ken and, and Lynn, uh, both of you were... were super active and, and I think um, helped to give us a lot of additional information and, and great insight from the work that you're involved with as well. So thank you very much. Um, and, uh, and please do keep uh, adding your notes and your resources into the Google Doc um, and we'll make that available at some point after the call um, so everyone will have access to all these notes and a record of the call from today. So. Um, you'll be able to reference it if you need to come back and find any more information. So thank you again to Alison and Will, and thanks to everyone for joining us today, and uh, enjoy the rest of your afternoon.